WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. And now. Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Quinn Hoffman, and this is Exposure. Tonight on the show, we're talking about campus life. How do you know what living situation is right for you? We're going to talk with some resident life experts about living on campus versus living on the outskirts and see if we can't answer that question. Later, we'll have a panel to come in and talk about biking here on campus and how to stay safe while you do it. After that, we'll have a talk with author Joey Fairman about his new unorthodox finance book and how students can better stretch their limited bank accounts. But first, we're joined by Dan Burkles of the MSU SHC to give us another option to student housing co-ops. You're listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM. I see you praying on the dance floor. See you moving so inspired. It's got me wondering what you're I'm sitting down now with Dan Burkles, the president of the SHC. Now, I'm a member of the co-ops myself, Dan, so I know what the SHC is. But for those who don't know, what is it? The SHC stands for the Student Housing Cooperative, and it's a federated corporate body of 14 individual houses around uh, the off-campus neighborhoods. And they range from five people to 29 people in the houses. Okay, and these, uh, these houses, a lot of people around campus might know them better as co-ops. Uh, you know, what, what is a co-op? A co-op is many things. Uh, fundamentally, a co-op is uh, an organization that is owned by its members, each member owning an equal share and having a, an equal vote in the uh, democratic participation of, uh, of the control of the, of the houses. Um, it, it tends to be a, a very unique living environment with a lot of people who don't know each other and would never meet any other way than living with each other. And it becomes a very safe space for people to uh, to live, to learn, to grow, and to explore their own identities and each other's. Okay, and so co-op is uh, short for cooperative, right? That's correct. And uh, and there's different kinds of co-ops, right? We're talking about housing, co-op, co-op housing, uh, but what other kinds of co-ops are there? So there are uh, worker co-ops, labor co-ops, consumer co-ops. Uh, there's credit union co-ops. The MSU uh, Federal Credit Union is a co-op. East Lansing Food Co-op is a co-op. Uh, the Green Bay Packers Football Stadium is a co-op owned by its season ticket holders. Okay, okay. Um, so especially for, I think, first years around campus, uh, you know, co-ops, you know, you kind of don't even hear them really. Uh you know, you kind of figure out about them later, um, and a lot of people don't even know what they are after they figure out about them. Um, I guess, what what would you say is different about living in a co-op than, say, a dorm or a frat or something like that? So uh, I like to use the, uh, the three C's when I describe what's different about a co-op. Uh, because it's member-owned, there's no landlord. So you have 
uh, control. You have high control over your environment. You can paint the walls any color you want. Any other living arrangement, uh, it's really hard to, to paint your walls because someone will make you paint them back. Uh, you make the decisions in your house as to how you want to pay your bills, what kind of what kind of things you want, what kind of food you want, if you want a meal plan. Um, and it's a low cost because there's no landlord. No one's profiting off of you. So all the money that you pay goes back into your house and into the system, not into someone's pocket. Uh, and also, because we're all in it together, there's, there's wide community. Community is the third C. Uh, you meet people from all the different houses. There's no competition. Uh, between houses, it's it's very friendly, very welcoming uh, atmosphere for people to live in. So high control, low cost, and wide community. Um, okay, you mentioned the meal meal plans in there. How does mm-hmm. that work? Uh, this isn't like a cafeteria thing, like right, like it is on campus, right? Uh, it's it's not. Um, a meal plan is basically uh, an agreement by the entire group in the house that uh, they want to spend part of their budget on food. So they set up a meal plan. And that includes uh, uh, groceries. They want pantry food. Uh, they want uh, things stocked, bread, milk, eggs, butter, rice, cheeses, vegetables. And then some houses decide to cook uh, so many nights a week, whether it's two, three, four nights a week. And uh, people are designated as cooks. People are designated as uh, shoppers. And people are designated as uh, wants to clean up after the meal. So uh, I just came back from a house dinner, uh, and we had uh, – we have a vegetarian meal plan. We had uh, avocado tacos. And uh, it's it turns out to be about a dollar per person per meal. So it's much cheaper than, than takeout or, or cafeteria food. So after the first years, you start hearing more and more about the co-ops. And I think that uh, there's some might be some stereotypes surrounding co-opers. Um, what would you say? I mean, are you aware of any of these stereotypes? What would you say these are? Yeah, I'm aware of a few stereotypes. Uh, a lot of people think it's just a lot of dirty hippies living together. Um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a few uh, hippie type of people, but if you call, you know, caring about your environment, caring about the environment, and uh, believing in a different economic system, then yeah, I guess we're all hippies. But uh, there's a lot of different kind of people in there. Um, some of the stereotypes is that everyone does drugs. Uh, which isn't true. Uh, there's a lot of houses. There's a few houses that are uh, substance-free, uh, or they've agreed to be so. Um, another another sort of stereotype is that they're very dirty and uncleanly inside, and uh, it, they can be that way sometimes. But that's only if the membership uh, isn't isn't working together and isn't cleaning. The houses I've seen this year have been very very clean. Okay, so you're saying this like it's not a uh, like a constant thing. Um, the people behind these co-ops, they kind of had have the control of what they're like, right? That's right, yeah. yeah. It's, it's all member-oriented, so the decisions that people make can differ from year to year. Okay, so um, they have they have like a, a vote for, uh, uh, you know, what, what they want. So theoretically, if uh, a bunch of people move into a house that was previously very dirty, uh, but they came in and they, they had a vote that they were going to, uh, you know, do away with all that, um, you know, could that potentially happen? Uh, yeah, I've I've seen that happen. Um, a house I moved into had a, a membership the year before that was very different from the membership that that I lived in, and um, when we got in there, we did a lot of cleaning. There's some a lot of dust left over from the renovations, and we just worked really hard. and And we agreed that if you didn't do your jobs, you would be fined. So there's a charge. There's an extra fee if you didn't do your jobs. And there's someone who goes around checking, make sure all the chores are done. And uh, those fees can add up very quickly, so so it it keeps people 
on top of things. And, and the people that, when the house is clean, it, it's much healthier and much better functioning than when it's not. Right, right. Okay. And these fines were, those were imposed by the housemates as well. Right? Yes, everyone agreed to those. Okay. Um, so uh, another thing that I was, I was uh, thinking about the other day was uh, the, the differences of uh, kind of the cultures of these areas and even uh, kind of the parties they throw. Um, I've noticed that you can, you could walk into a party and uh, you know, like a frat party and without ever seeing a Greek letter or anything like that, you would know where you were. You, you could tell what it is. And, and that's the same for a house party or an apartment party. They all kind of have their own things. Uh, what, what would you say the characteristics, defining characteristics of a co-op party would be? Well, we have uh, in our, our code of operations, which is a, a governing document that we've all agreed to, uh, that every party has to have a theme. So uh, when, you, when you throw a party, there, there has to be a theme. It can't just be a, you know, a rager. It has to have a theme like, uh, you know, 70s night or, or 90s night or, uh, you know, space, outer space theme. So you notice uh, people are dressed up uh, a little bit differently or they got a different vibe. And uh, another thing is that uh, there's a lot of musically oriented people in the houses uh, or they're friends with very, very uh, talented musicians. So there's always live bands. There's either two live bands, sometimes there's six live bands. A lot of the jazz students and music students uh, show up to, to play some gigs and sets uh, at our parties. And then, you know, the, the people are... are Hopefully, in in my experience, much more welcoming. There's people at the doors saying hello to everyone who comes in, making sure you know someone, or or if you don't know anyone, that you know them at the door. Uh, so the the vibes are much friendlier, and and the walls are very colorful. Yeah, yeah. Um. Uh, so you've mentioned a couple times about uh, you know, the the kind of rules or uh, the decisions the house has made. Uh, as I understand it, all the houses have a. Uh, constitution mm-hmm. uh, of which all the uh, rules and uh, regulations I suppose are in uh, what what are these constitutions about uh, well the constitution you know it's it's kind of just a way to to bind everyone to give a sense of order so that so that people know how things go uh, and they kind of govern membership and a member's rights and responsibilities you know you have a right to a clean safe house you have the right to, to quiet at certain times. You have the right to, to be free of harassment. And, uh, and then there's other things, you know, that decide, you know, something that happens a- every year annually. There has to be, you know, uh, an ugly sweater party or something. And then it can uh, describe how room picks and room assignments happen. So it, it, it'll describe, uh, you know, at the 4th of April that, that the membership officer has to gather all the new members and, and go over the room picks for the next year so that everyone knows where they're living. And, and the constitutions are, are always uh, able to be amended. Anyone can amend them, and it just takes a House majority vote or whoever the House decides to make decisions, whether it's through consensus or, or majority. There's a lot of housing options out there, and, um, you know, I guess why, why would you, uh, I, as I understand it, you are also a member of the, the uh, co-ops, right? You, uh, that's you, right. Why would you choose the co-ops? Why did you choose the co-ops, I suppose? Um, as opposed to any other living situation here on campus? I chose the co-ops because um, uh, I was looking for something different. Uh, I was tired of just being boxed up in an apartment or uh, just living with you know four of my friends in a house. Uh, eventually, I stayed in school a little bit longer than some of my friends, and uh, they all moved on, and I was stuck looking for a place to live. 
Um, I didn't want to live alone, and I was really longing for this sense of community. I, I come from the metro Detroit area where I don't even know my neighbors very well, uh, and I was really, really looking and searching for a sense of belonging. Uh, I would walk down the street, and I would, I would see these beautiful places with these, these twin pine logos, some green pine trees in, in some yellow circle. And uh, I knew something was just different and cool and, uh, and hip and intelligent and kind of radical about these places. So, uh, so that's what made me want to join. And I really wanted to meet new people and uh, really expand my comfort zone and, and expand my horizons as, as far as cultural horizons and, uh, and my, own, my own personal growth is concerned. All right, and uh, I suppose you mentioned that musicians um, mm. were pretty common there. Are there um, other types of people you've run into? Because, yeah, I've noticed definitely a, a good amount of uh, musicians or artists. Mm. Um, but, you know, I've also seen uh, you know, protesters, um, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, do you have anything to say about that? Any more types of people that kind of flock to the co-ops? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've noticed a lot of activism in the co-ops and I've learned a lot about uh, certain movements, certain social justice movements, uh, and and even just oppression of certain identities uh, while living in the co-ops that I, I was just oblivious to before I lived here. I've met a lot of people who uh, who are into video games or, or gamers. I've met I've met people who are who are athletic. Uh, I've met people who uh, who aren't there some of the time because they're so involved with. Uh, with other governing groups or other organizations or, or other passion projects, uh, one of the, the the president of ASMSU lives in one of our houses, and I, I've met people people like myself as well who who are just really excited to learn and grow and better themselves and better the environments that they live in and and really affect the culture around them. Um, for the people that are listening and they sound pretty interested to this, um, how how does somebody get involved in the co-ops? So you can get involved uh, as simply as just knocking on a, a door that is a co-op and, and introducing yourself, saying you're interested, and, and asking for a tour. We really love our houses. We're really proud of them, and we love to show them off. Uh, if you want to be more formal, you can go to the website. It's www.msu.coop, and you can find uh, all the information you need there. There's uh, house pages for every house, and on those house pages there's a contact for the membership officer. Uh, there's an application you fill out, and then you contact the membership officer, and, and they'll set up a house tour with you. You attend a, a house meeting to see how the meetings go and how everyone uh, makes decisions together, and then you can attend a house dinner or house meal to, to really hang out and, and get to know the people that live there. And once you've done that, then uh, you, you're approved by the house, and you can sign a contract or a membership agreement, as we like to say. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Some kind of nature, some kind of soul, some kind of mixture, some kind of gold, some kind of majesty, some chemical load. Recently, one of our reporters had the opportunity to participate in NPR's Next Generation radio project. For the project, the journalists were tasked with finding a character who had an interesting narrative to share with the world. Here's Gabriella Saldivia reporting for NPR from Seattle. I don't actually love eating mushrooms. Meet Jeremy Faber. He spends his days in the woods searching for mushrooms. I love hunting them. I love collecting them. It's like 
there could be a hill that I will drive three hours to pick under one tree sometimes. That's tomorrow. I'm driving two hours to pick one little section of trees because I might get 100 pounds of mushrooms out of it. I was a forestry major in college, but I was also that kid that when I was like four would just be running around the yard like a squirrel collecting like black walnuts and pine cones and making weird stuff. And I got into food at a really early age because I'm vegetarian, so I was always cooking a lot. I just kind of combined the two careers. So when I was working in restaurants, I'd always pick mushrooms on the side. And then when I decided to leave restaurants and just give picking a shot, the first year that I stopped doing it was a bumper morel crop. Um, so it's just like I had a great first year. So I was like, oh, well, I can actually do this. All right, so this is the warehouse. Yeah, watch my stairs. They're really steep. And I haven't redone them because I don't know what to do with them. This is how bad my life's become. There's dry mushrooms everywhere. When I first bought the house, I built out this whole basement. And my original thing was just this closet would be dried mushrooms. I'm like, oh, great. We have a storage closet for the dried mushrooms, right? So that thing's full. Now the hallway's full and an upstairs bedroom's full. Well, getting full. Watch your head, too, so. And here's the dryer. I only have one. We really want another one. But, um, yeah, I see there's just trays of different mushrooms. These are all, like, this stuff's almost completely dried up top. Whereas this stuff just went on yesterday. And here's the porcini that I was saying are probably the, one of the smelliest of the mushrooms. Yesterday, for some reason, my cat was really wanted to get in to the dryer because she was just in love with something that was in there. And I'm assuming it was a matsutake. Kind of smells like cat urine drying. When it's drying, it doesn't taste like it, it just smells like it. The house just, yeah, it just smells like earth. It's, it's as if you stuck your head in mud and then buried yourself in sand and sawdust. That's what it would be like. Like the equivalent of having like 200 pounds of potpourri in your basement. You know what I mean? You're definitely going to smell that. Everyone thinks, oh, it must be so cool to go get free food in the woods. It's like, no, there's a huge cost to it. I drive 80,000 miles a year. I spend a lot of money on gasoline and car repairs and tires and 20-hour days and wet in the woods and not living at home and not having a relationship because of it. And my cat's always being mad at me. That's an important part of my life, by the way. But... I like my lifestyle. That's I wouldn't want it any other way. Some kind of metal needle from glue, some kind of plastic I could wrap around you. The needy eat man made they wear phony clothes. They sit you are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. Right now, we're joined with some panelists to uh, discuss bicycle safety. Panelists, can you introduce yourselves? My name is uh, Lieutenant Randy Holton. I'm with the Michigan State University Police Department. And I'm Tim Potter. I'm the general manager of the MSU Bike Service Center. Awesome. All right, guys. Um, so brought you in here today because there's a bicycle safety campaign going on, right? So can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, it was something, well, something that we, we, we kind of do on a regular basis here, but based on some uh, serious accidents that we've had uh, during the uh, 2014 year, um, I decided to go ahead and do a informational and uh, safety bike and pedestrian campaign. Um, so uh, based on, just as I said, this fall, we had a, a couple real serious accidents where the person was hurt, so I decided to go ahead and step it up uh, this fall, starting in uh, September, and through a variety of, uh, I guess, informational uh, means through uh, social media, media, 
uh, resident halls and other various uh, outlets on campus, we tried to go ahead and get the information out. And this is one uh, avenue that we hope we can get it out to our, uh, our community. Obviously, biking's a huge part of college, college life, uh, especially a campus this big. Um, we have bike lanes. We have bike racks all over the place. Um, a lot of people have bikes, but I, I do feel personally that you know a lot of people sometimes don't know everything there is to know about bikes and, and their safety. I know a lot of people who won't use bike lanes because they're not entirely sure on the rules or uh, you know how to stay safe. Uh, what do you guys think about that? Well, you know, we've made huge progress in terms of the facilities that you mentioned, bike lanes. Uh, there were none in the year 2000, from what I hear. I wasn't paying real close attention because I'd just come to MSU. I started working here at about that time. Um, but from that point, the university decided that every new road project would get bike lanes on the roads as they got funding to repair, replace, or build new roads. And uh, that really, you know, with that commitment, in terms of investment and uh, into the safety, because at that time they started noticing more problems with bicyclists uh, and motorists and pedestrians. So with that commitment, I mean, we're now at about 70% of the, the roadways on campus now have bike lanes. So it's in 14 years, it's, it's we've made huge progress. And so those on-road facilities is really where um, – we want people to ride, and that's according to the ordinance of the university to not be riding on the sidewalks with all, all the pedestrians, but on the roadway. So um, we've made a lot of progress. And in, in the bike parking, there's, like you said, there's lots of bike parking. Uh, we have, I think, over 8,000 8, bike racks on campus and well over 20,000 bikes. So the population has really grown. The whole industry nationwide, worldwide, is really in a boom, another bike boom, uh, probably starting with the oil prices that went sky high in about 2008 uh, re things really started hopping so yeah the whole population has really kind of exploded in terms of bicycling and our campus population in general has grown quite a bit it's mm. in the last 14 years so yeah I agree with Tim um, as a bicyclist here things have changed and we've always had the ordinance uh, basically indicating bikes are supposed to ride on the uh, bike path or uh, legally on the roadway but um, one thing that a person has to be aware of, it kind of depends on where you're from. Um, so as a bicyclist, it's your responsibility to go ahead and know the requirements or the laws where you're riding your bike. Some communities, and more and more communities are becoming bike-friendly and requiring bikes to go ahead and do certain things. Some communities, you can ride on the sidewalks. They're restricted sometimes downtown areas where they don't want bicycles. So it kind of depends on the community. Here at MSU, um, there is an ordinance that says you have to go ahead and ride um, on the bike path or properly on the roadway, and you're not supposed to go ahead and ha be riding a bike on the, on the sidewalk. You, if you have a bike on the sidewalk, you have to walk it. And another thing that, uh, that we really, I think, need to get their information out is that you're required to register your bike. Um, it's required by ordinance. Um, it's free. You can do it online, and it's also a deterrent to theft. Um, as a, you know, especially if there's a situation where somebody has their bike stolen, and a police officer is out there and they contact somebody, all they got to go ahead and do is check the information, which is on file at our department, and basically we've recovered your stolen bike. If you don't register it and we contact somebody, we think they're stealing the bike, 
and we don't have the information, there's not much we can do. Um, if it's not uh, registered, we can't get a hold of the owner um, and because we don't have the information. So it is a deterrent to theft to register your bike, and it's also required by MSU ordinance to register your bike. Right. Yeah, it's an ordinance of MSU that bikes can't be ridden on the sidewalks. Yes. Um, that, that was something I didn't know. I knew about the registration, and I knew a good amount about uh, the bike laws. But, yeah, I, I wasn't aware that it, they had to be. Do you think there's some other uh, laws that kind of the common public aren't all that aware of when it comes to bikes? Well, I, I see there's some confusion with um, when you're riding in the road. Sometimes now that we have bike lanes, I'll see people riding against traffic, and they don't really understand that you're supposed to ride mm-hmm. with traffic. I'll see That's, that, too. You know, I'm seeing more and more of that. We call them wrong-way cyclists. They're sometimes called salmon. Swimming upriver, <laughs> um, so that's that's kind of, I mean that's not a huge problem yet, but it's something that I think people need to keep in mind. I mean that's the motorists when they are approaching a roadway, they're going to look in the direction of oncoming traffic before they turn right. They're not going to look right to see. They don't expect people to be approaching from the right side, so it's just something to bear in mind. Um, but going back to the the what the lieutenant was talking about in terms of where to ride. There, I think there's some confusion as to what's a sidewalk and what's a bike path and what's the bike lane. Um, the university has got all three and maybe some other types as well. But um, and going way back, there used to be the 18-inch uh, concrete strips that were next to the sidewalks all over campus, and those have been largely removed. Those used to be called our bike paths. They were these little concrete strips, and they're, they were so narrow and so uh, more of a balance uh, test than anything else, I think. And just a little too narrow for people who aren't like pulling trailers with their kid kids and things of that sort, and they got in disrepair over the years and have been removed. But um, so along the river trail, most recently this past summer, we, the university greatly widened and improved the the river trail on the south side of the river or path, and we call that a separated bike path and a separated or shared use path area. Um, so that's I don't think we're we're not talking about that because that's actually marked for bicycling and designed for bicycling and pedestrians to safely use it simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, the sidewalks are what is really what's parallel to a roadway. And that kind of di- differentiation is, I think, um, sometimes not really understood. And so that's those are the areas that, you know, if you're next to a roadway, you should really be riding as a vehicle in the roadway and not on the sidewalk. And it's, it's really a lot faster. I mean, I, th- I think a lot of people are starting to get it. You know, as they see people in the roadway getting to class a lot faster, you know, I, I see a lot more people using the bike lanes, uh, certainly, than there used to be. As a bicyclist, um, you are supposed to go ahead and obey all traffic laws just like a vehicle on the road. <clears throat> so, as Tim said, you're supposed to use the bike path. Um, if there's not a bike path available, you're supposed to li- ride um, properly in the roadway. And uh, motorists are supposed to give all rights um, to a bicyclist on the roadway, uh, just the same as a vehicle. You cannot ride more than two abreast as you're going down the road. When you come to a stop sign, you got to stop at a stop sign. You have to stop at a red light. Um, but uh, and you also can't avoid the traffic control device. Some you'll see some bikes will be in the bike path. All of a sudden, they'll jump jump into the crosswalk and ride around the crosswalks and basically get back to the bike path. That's illegal. You cannot avoid a traffic control device. But one of the, I, I think here what we've seen, one of the, the major, I think, problems is, or the accidents that are occurring out there, is when you have a bicyclist who's riding down the sidewalk. 
and you have a motorist that's coming up to a traffic light, a red light, and they're going to make a right-hand turn. So they look because pedestrians have the right-of-way there. So they're looking to see if there's any pedestrians coming. And all of a sudden, they proceed to go, and here comes a bicycle that's flying down the sidewalk into the crosswalk, and then we have a collision. That seems to be one of the, the more frequent uh, type of accidents that we're having on campus. But also, what we're finding out is that bicycle and pedestrians don't mesh really well on the sidewalk. We're having a lot of pedestrians that are being hit by bicyclists uh, because they're weaving in and out of the pedestrians. They're riding, they're riding fast on the sidewalks. Or what we're finding is that the bicyclists are riding on the sidewalks, the same sidewalks, and they're coming towards each other and they're swerving in the same direction, and they're colliding with each other. And as I said, we've had some really bad accidents where they're vehicle-bicycle and also bicycle-bicycle. I mean, to the point where um, some of them have been really, really serious accidents. Yeah, what, what kind of advice would you give to uh, prevent something like this happening again in the future? Well, what the advice is that you, to obey the, uh, the bicycle and the traffic laws. Um, sidewalks were meant for people to walk on. Also, I'd like to point out here is that skateboarders that we're finding that uh, they're, they're, they're skateboarding in the roadway, they're not entitled to be in the roadway. They are considered a pedestrian. Yeah. They have to be on the sidewalks and obey all pedestrian, uh, pedestrian laws. So basically, sidewalks were, were created for people to walk on. Bike paths and uh, the roadway were created for um, bicycles to ride on. And, of course, vehicles along in the, in the roadway. So... If everybody would just go ahead and um, pedestrians obey the pedestrian walls, wa um, laws, cross where they're supposed to, obey the traffic s signal uh, control devices, and bicycles you know, ride where they're supposed to and obey all the traffic laws, and again, the motorists uh, obeying the traffic laws, I think things would flow better here, and we would have, uh, we would have you know, less, less accidents. One other thing that I think is important is that um, Bicyclists and pedestrians are getting a, little, a lot more distracted, and motorists as yes. well. Yes. So, you know, I see a lot of bicyclists and pedestrians that aren't really paying attention. They're, they've got earbuds in. They're looking at their phones. And I think a lot of times that can lead to collisions as well. They, they look up, and all of a sudden they're distracted. Yeah, they have less response time between uh, an accident. Yeah, no, it's, it's actually pretty interesting. Um, you know, we've kind of really started to develop kind of a campaign against texting and driving because, you know, that's right. kind of a new budding thing and it's very dangerous. Um, but, yeah, I found myself biking and then realizing I'm texting and biking. That's <laughs> probably no better. Um, yeah, so that that's kind of an interesting thing that, uh, it you know, you kind of don't see it translating, but it, it kind of comes out the same way. Um, well, <clears throat> what also is interesting is if, if you want to know what the laws are, they are uh, um, on public display. You can actually see them, a link to them uh, uh, at our website, uh, police.msu.edu. And uh, uh, we do have an ordinance. And what we're finding out is that you're going to see, you see a few bicyclists that are going down the road riding with no hands, and they're texting on their mm -hmm. phone. And we actually do have an ordinance that says you, you cannot... Um, you have to have control of your bike. Now, by that is you're not supposed to take your both your hands off the uh, the handlebars. So, and that that's really dangerous. They're they're riding down the sidewalks. They're riding down the the, the, the bike paths or the right side of the road. And here they are. They're focusing as they're riding, texting on their phones. It's very dangerous. Yeah, I'm sure it looks cool, you know, or maybe <laughs> their hands are cold or something. But gloves or mittens are pretty cheap compared to a trip to the hospital. Yeah. Um, 
I guess since we're talking about safety, let's uh, talk about helmets. Um, there are there are there laws in place uh, for helmets while you're biking. Um, there is no law here that you're required to wear a helmet, but I think I'm going to go ahead and turn this one over uh, to Tim here. Yeah, I mean, as you see, I, I wear a helmet in today. Um, they're unfortunately not they're not required by law, but um, they're recommended. Really, yeah, recommended. We strongly recommend them, and I, I use them almost all the time. I'd say almost because sometimes I'm doing really low speed rides over from my bike shop over to the admin building to do a deposit or something like that, and it's 500 feet. Um, and sometimes I get people yelling at me like, where's your helmet? So I, um, yeah, it's, it's really a good idea. It's what we call it is just really cheap insurance, you know, for your, for your noggin. Cause uh, a lot of times that's where cyclists hit. They're pretty vulnerable on, on the head. Um, I've had other students who came in with helmets on and I said, well, that's, you know, it's great that you're wearing a helmet, you know? And he said, yeah, my, my parents or someone told me, you know, if you, um, you know, it's, it's um, if you want to be stupid or look stupid or something like that delivered that wrong but anyway you don't want to end up with a brain injury you know so why not be safe and, and wear something that that'll protect you for life and there's a lot of better style helmets that that we sell and can order for people as well through the bike shop so it's it's not um something where it really has to look dorky i mean they've made a lot of progress in making helmets look a lot a lot better and so there's a lot of different designs out there and but I, I like to also focus on other aspects of safety, and, and through the MSU Bikes website, I've, I've got I've written quite a lot about different aspects of, of safety. That visibility is a huge thing. Just dressing in brighter colors, like the jacket I wore this morning, uh, using lights to make yeah. sure that you're highly visible. Uh, a lot of times, I see people that are, are like ninjas, you know, both pedestrians and bicyclists. They're just you can't see them, and it's like okay, you can see maybe someone oncoming, but they can't see you from behind you know you you could be a statistic and as as tim brought up which is required by law we do have a lot of bicycles that ride at night uh a white light headlight is required on the front of the bike um a red reflector is by law required on the back of the bike a red light is recommended so we see a tremendous amount of bikes riding at night again tim talked about being high visibility with clothes but also having a, a white light on the front mm -hmm. and a red for, for at least a red reflector on the back so that a red light or lamp is recommended what is required by msu ordinance and also law state law and we're hoping to as part of an ongoing campaign we're looking to hopefully next year sometime uh, get some funding resources together and maybe do a light giveaway kind of campaign a lot of universities have done this where they they'll go out and actually have people reminding people of the law and say here you know you really need a light it's required by law it's it's smart and they'll actually give them a light and put it right on the bike for them and so it's, it's something i've seen done at quite a few universities and i really want to pursue here and so it's something that we're uh, starting to make plans for for next year and um, amongst other things um so with this campaign is there anything else that you really want to get out there that you think the the uh, public needs to know um in order to you know be on be on the roadways safely no I think that's some. <clears throat> excuse me. I think that's something we're we're going to continue with. Again, I think we're we're talking about changing the culture here, and it's going to take mm -hmm. a little bit. Where we understand that, but you know, um, just making the, our community, our, our bicyclists, and our pedestrians, and especially our motorists, you know, aware of what the laws are and the requirements are, um, to make sure that the bicyclists are riding where they're supposed to, 
pedestrians are all, you know, riding, walking where they're supposed to. Um, and the motorists are basically yielding um, to our um, pedestrians and our bicycles who are legally in the road. Um, I think just getting this information out that we're, we're, we're going to continue to make our community aware of what the requirements are. And as we grow here as a university, we'll, we'll make our community safer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lieutenant mentioned the culture, and I, I think we may have done that off air, but the, the culture is, is something that I think over time we've, we've really started to, um, whether or not we realize it or not, there, there is a certain expected behavior or culture on campus in many different areas. But um, I've been to some universities where you know, I ride on the sidewalk for 50 feet and, and elderly women of the community just yell at me for riding on the sidewalk. And it's like, wow. You know, I mean, so there's an expected be- behavior in, in some communities who've really been at bicycling. Like I was at, that was UC Davis where bicycling has been really a big thing for probably 40 years. And so, you know, I, I think someday we're going to get to that point where everybody kind of understands where they should be and where they should be behaving. And that's, I think where we want to be and where we're, we're shooting for. And, and you think right now that at MSU, uh, our culture is kind of just accepting of, uh, you know, bikes doing as they want, really? It's kind of a wild, wild west. <laughs> you might. Can, I like to direct the question to Tim here. And I can talk about the laws here. But some uh, we, we actually did some, um, got a couple uh, articles in the state news. And some of the comments uh, that the... Uh, I guess responses is that I feel unsafe in the road. I feel it's safer to be on the sidewalks. Mm-hmm. I can talk about the laws, but as a bicyclist, can you can you maybe address that? Because I think you know some people feel they're safe around the sidewalks. And again, I can go back that we're having accidents. You know where, where people are coming off the sidewalks and the crosswalks, and um, you know they're colliding with vehicles, and they're also you know the bicycles that are riding on the sidewalks are colliding with each other. So maybe you can address that. Yeah, I think a lot of people grow up as a child, you know, they're told when they're, and it's a good idea when you're a child up to maybe age 10 or 12 to, to be riding on the sidewalks and to, to be, because you're unpredictable, you're weaving around, you're not really uh, paying that much attention to your surroundings. But after that age, I mean, it's, it's really safer to, be a, to, to move into, in, into the roadway uh, assuming that you're you're predictable and you're riding, say you know in a where you should be, you certainly don't want to be um, doing things in the roadway that would get you run over. But so I think a lot of people that come to campus have that in their mindset that that's where I rode when I, where I was at home, and that's where I'll continue to ride. But if as I ride on the road and I, I look at people riding on the sidewalk next to me, I see every single car that's stopped at a driveway or an access point coming up to the roadway, the, the sidewalk cyclist being stopped every single time, that or they could be potentially hit by an approaching car coming up to that intersection or driveway. And every single time I ride to work, which is about six miles, there's probably 50 different points of potential collision when you're riding on the sidewalk. But for me, as a as riding as a vehicle of the roadway, I have maybe five intersections and motorists stop and they're observing me as just another vehicle of the roadway and so really if you look at it and I want to do a video someday of just how the difference of me being in the roadway versus if I were on the sidewalk at that point I could have been hit or I'd have to slam on my brakes like 50 times. So you're basically saying which I agree with you is that the the motorists 
as a motorist, I know the bikes, there's a bike path there. That's where I'm anticipating the bike to, to be if there's on one, the roadway, sure. if there's one there. Mm-hmm. And I'm not anticipating a bike, if I'm, especially if I'm making a right-hand turn coming off right. the sidewalk into the, the crosswalk. Yeah, and especially if you're going over, say, 10 miles per hour or, you know, a pedestrian can go up to, you know, running, I suppose you can, you can get up to 10 or 12 miles per hour. But, um, you know, those speeds, I'd say, fine, use the sidewalk. But if you're going 15, 20 miles an hour, that, that's, that's a place where you, 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 the speed that you should really be in the roadway. And, you know, you're traveling at motor vehicle speed at that point. Uh, do police officers pull over bicyclists? Yeah, we do. Um, it's no different than any, um, like a motorist or a pedestrian or a bicyclist that's, that's basically violating the law or creating a, an unsafe condition. I mean, you got a bicyclist that is weaving, you know, on the sidewalk, in the roadway, making it dangerous for pedestrians and motorists. Yeah, we'll contact them. Um, Matter of fact, during this comp- con- this uh, safety campaign, I've contacted several bicycles and pedestrians out there, and basically informing them of the law. I didn't I didn't write a ticket, um, and then I don't think there was a ticket written during this safety campaign. The officers were just out there. Our bike unit, our officers uh, were on foot, uh, also in uh, our our patrol vehicles. Uh, we were out there contacting uh, bicycles and pedestrians and making them, uh, you know, uh, letting them know that they were in violation of uh, the law, but also making them, educating them on the law. Um, but it's no different than um, going forward. If, as I said, if we see a motorist, uh, uh, a bicyclist or a pedestrian that's violating the law and it, it's a, uh, they're creating a hazardous situation, that'll be up to the discretion of the officer whether they, uh, they want to go ahead and issue a citation or a warning in that situation. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming um, the reason uh, no no tickets are they're not often given is kind of the culture issue we were talking about earlier that uh, you know here at MSU the culture is kind of uh, uneducated a lot a lot of the people don't know um, what what is to be expected so right now it's kind of trying to educate the public I think right? we're I think we're yes we're during this last uh, few months here we've been in that education mode where we're trying to educate the public yeah making them aware of what the laws are. Um, you know, trying to go ahead and, and let them know how to properly and safely uh, ride on campus. But again, if, if it's a situation that deserves a ticket or if it's uh, um, a, a situation where there's a really endangering our community, that's not saying that they, they couldn't receive a ticket. I think one other thing that I, uh, earlier I should have brought it up, but the, the university has kind of a, a priority prioritization of transportation modes in terms of um, what sometimes we call it a pecking order, but uh, it's really uh, basically pedestrians are at the top and bicyclists, then transit or buses, and then motor vehicles, both university and private vehicles. And that it's kind of been, it's in the campus master plan in terms of a design principle for the university. And, and really, I think that's where we want to get to in terms of, I think, the culture at some point that pedestrians are treated as, you know, the number one because they're the most vulnerable, really, mm-hmm. and um, down, the, down the, the line. So pedestrians, bicyclists, transit or buses, and then private motor vehicles. But <clears throat> as the law, we have to remember, though, um, roadways um, are for, you know, motorists and, 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 and bicycles. So basically, um, as you're on the roadway there, um, say a bicyclist or a motorist does have the right of way unless 
the um, pedestrian is is lawfully in the crosswalk. So, um, you know, again, roadways were were, were created for uh, vehicles, and, and as I said, um, where bike paths are not um, available for bicycles going down the road. So, um, a bicyclist in the bike path or a motorist on the roadway has to yield to a pedestrian that's lawfully uh, in the crosswalk. Then, so. Um, but the pedestrian has to remember too; they have to give the bicyclist and the uh, the motors time to react to them entering the crosswalk too. So, and that may be something that you want to expand on in terms of what's lawfully in the roadway, because I think a lot of people um, in some communities, if you're standing next to a roadway, they have to stop for you and allow you to walk. But I, do you want to expand on that for the university? So, for pedestrians, yeah, pedestrians know what is the the law. Yep. Um, well, under under the law is that uh, the pedestrian has to uh, be in the crosswalk. So the foot out there in the they have to enter into the crosswalk. Um, they have to give the driver or the bicyclist an opportunity to react to them entering into the crosswalk. So if a pedestrian is standing at this at the side of the uh, on the sidewalk at the side of the crosswalk, they do not have the right of way. They actually have to be <clears throat> um, in the crosswalk, and again. Prior to entering, they have to give the bicyclist or the uh, the motorist an opportunity to react to them entering into the crosswalk. All right. Are there any any uh, final comments or statements you want to make here as we're reaching the end of this interview? Well, we're we're going into winter. Um, I'm going to be launching some classes. I'll be scheduling some classes on winter, safe winter cycling, and you know how to prepare your bike, how to prepare your yourself, your clothing, issues like that, how to. Uh, makes studded snow tires, things of that sort. So th- those will be on our website shortly, um, probably later today. We'll get some scheduled. So if you're interested in riding through the winter, which a lot of people do ride their bikes through the winter, believe it or not, um, yeah, come on out to some classes and learn more about that and be safe through winter. Yeah, as Tim said there, um, again, <clears throat> this um, I think this campaign is all about safety here and making our community aware of it. Uh, what the, you know, how to properly be a pedestrian, how to properly be a bicyclist and a motorist on campus and make sure that everybody knows the laws and they're obeying the laws so that, that we can have a, a safe environment out there for everyone, even our, our visitors here when they come to MSU. But um, it's something that we're going to continue with here. I think we're going to expand the, uh, the, the safety uh, and informational campaign. And I'd be more than happy to go ahead and uh, if anybody has any questions or concerns or uh um, any ideas, actually, more than happy to go ahead and, uh, and talk to them. Um, they can reach me at the police department. Um, they can go to our website, uh, again, police.msu.edu. Um, they can like us on Facebook. Uh, we do put a lot of good information out there on safety and, and, um, and crime prevention on our, uh, on our Facebook page. Um, we do have one. Um, but uh, this is something that we're going to continue to do. I think we're going to work with Tim here and some other committees on campus. We're going to continue to promote this. And, again, I think it's, uh, it goes back to just making uh, our community aware and trying to change that mindset or that culture um, into making safe transportation on this campus. All right. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. All right. Thank you, Quinlan. Thank you.
Joining us now is uh, Joey Fairman, the author of a finance book that takes a different approach. Joey, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, uh, so how about you tell us a little bit about this book? What, 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 what's your book called? What's it about? Yeah, sure. So it's called Pirates of Financial Freedom. So normally people don't associate pirates with uh, financial literacy, and that's kind of the point. I wanted to make it different. Uh, this is the first personal finance adventure novel. Um, I've read a lot of personal finance books out there, and pretty much they're all boring. So I wanted to do something a little different. This has action, humor, a little bit of romance, plot twist, character development, you know, everything a novel would have, by, uh, but it also has 70 powerful money lessons so people can learn you know, how to achieve financial freedom in an entertaining way. Okay, so it's a it's a finance kind of a textbook, but instead of the textbook format, you you tell it in this entertaining novel format. Exactly. If it's um easier to understand, is this uh, geared towards a younger audience? Or, you know, what what kind of age group are we looking at here? Yeah, so I you know I wanted to write a book that could have the most impact, and so I tried to think of what age group could I really influence the most, and I came to the conclusion that the, the teens and twenties kind of age range. They're just starting to get some income from part-time jobs or they're about to graduate from college with their first full-time job. They hopefully don't have too much debt at the moment. They have a lot of time uh, until retirement so they can get the power of compound interest working for them. So I wrote it for that teens and 20s kind of age range, but people from ages 8 to 48 have read it and just, you know, had really great things to say about it. So I think it's one of those uh, novels and books that can have like a wider uh, audience. Okay. Um, so if it's for that kind of teens, uh, you know, 20s range, uh, do you think that this could be potentially pretty helpful to college students? Well, absolutely. I mean, they were kind of the main focus uh, when I was writing it is to what can make the most impact for, for college students because, as I said, hopefully they're starting to generate some income and, you know, a lot of times they don't know what to do with it. Uh, a lot of times during college is when people get into a lot of financial trouble. So that's when they start to get the credit card offers and they may not understand the dangers of it. You know, they could still be paying that off that credit card debt 10 years from now, which a lot of people don't realize. And during college, a lot of times that's when the financial habits start to form, either good or bad. So if you can start to get even just doing little things um, to get into good habits, I've found that the things that you do when you have a little bit of money are often the same habits you have when you make a lot of money. So it's good to get off to a, a healthy start. Right. Yeah, we tend to know that college is very expensive and people get, you know, take out these massive student loans. And, uh, you know, especially at this age, it, yeah, it's definitely important to start planning for the long term. Um, and I think it sounds like your book could really help some people do that. Uh what about what about the more short term? Do you think there's um, aspects of college life that are uh, that are just you know maybe it's hard to make uh, you know rent or something like that? Uh, can your book help out with that at all? Do you think uh, college students are in a in a unique situation there at this age? Oh, absolutely. So there's a few lessons that can be kind of applied in the short term. For some younger people, it's hard to be like, you know, I don't care about being a millionaire when I'm you know, 65 years old, uh, I want to know what I can do now. And so I think there are a few lessons that people can apply right away. Uh, one is kind of breaking these limiting beliefs that a lot of people have. 
So one of my favorite quotes that's, uh, that's in the book is from Henry Ford, and he says, whether you think you can or whether you think you can't, you're right. So I think a lot of times uh, college students will think, you know, I can't, I can't become a millionaire. You know, I can't make an extra thousand dollars this month doing whatever. Oh, I can't get excellent grades because of X, Y, and Z reason, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of um, things that they feel that they just can't do. And when you tell your brain that you cannot do something, it just accepts it. Whereas the alternative is, you know, if you tell your brain you can do something and you start to think, how can I make this possible, then a lot of times it'll actually materialize. So if college students want to make extra income, uh, they can do it. They just have to put in the work, and sometimes it takes a while to figure it out. But if you keep asking your brain, you know, how can I achieve this, uh, then it can eventually happen. So it's kind of breaking those limiting beliefs during the college years can really catapult them to the next level uh, later on. Um, another thing is the 10 times test. So this is just something that I used personally and that I invented. Uh, when somebody goes to buy something that they don't need, it's just a want, you know, they can ask themselves, does this pass the 10 times test with which basically says, do I have at least 10 times that amount in savings? So if you're going to buy you know, a $50 video game, do you have at least $500, which is 10 times that amount, in savings? If the answer is no, maybe you should kind of delay that purchase until you have that amount so you can kind of responsibly uh, buy the things you want. Um, so the 10 times test, I think, has been very helpful to a lot of people, especially college students. All right, all right. Um, you mentioned a couple times about credit card debt. Um, uh, do you do you personally think that um, credit card debt is a a big problem specifically with the uh, the college uh, level? Oh yeah, I think it's a it's absolutely a big problem with college students. If you look at statistics, you know the average student will graduate with uh, I don't I don't know the exact number. We call it three thousand dollars of credit card debt once they graduate from college, and if you're paying over 15% interest on that credit card debt, I mean, it could take you years to kind of work your way out of that. You know, I have friends that are in their 30s who are still paying off that, you know, the debt they got in, not not um, college loan debt, but credit card debt that they had gotten into during their college years because, you know, they get, uh, they sign up for uh, a credit card because they get a free t-shirt or something and then they end up charging, charging it to the max. And once they get a job, they don't have that extra income. They don't have the, they're not financially responsible with their, with their earnings. So that credit card debt just stays around for years. So, yeah, I think one of the biggest things that college students can do is just not get into credit card debt. And so whatever income comes in, I mean, just spend, I would say spend the money that's coming in irresponsibly before you uh, get a credit card and then, that can just lead to a lot of problems down the road. Okay. Um, <clears throat> you already mentioned the uh, ten, 10 times test. Uh, if, there was, if there was another lesson that you wanted to kind of sample out to our listeners, um, is there something that you think you know our age range might really benefit from? Yeah, starting to uh, figure out what your financial goals are and then taking action on them. You know, I think a lot of people... A lot of people in their 40s don't know what they want to be when they grow up, you know. I think if you can start to figure out what your passion is early on in life, especially during college years, I mean, that's the perfect time. You can take classes to, you know, expand your horizons, really trying to figure out what your passion is, what gets you excited. 
Uh, if you can figure that out at a college age, the money will come later. I mean, there's so many ways to make money in today's economy that I think step one is figuring out what really gets you excited, what, what you're really passionate about. Um, and then secondly, uh, figuring out what your goals are and then taking action on them. A lot of the lessons that I teach in this book are not uh, rocket science. You know, start saving for retirement, pay off your credit card every month, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but a lot of people don't actually do that. So setting goals and taking action on them, I think, is another very important lesson that college students could uh, start applying right away. And that's why the last chapter in my book is my goal-setting system. And basically it says, set a goal that's a few months to a year out, get an accountability partner, and then set weekly goals that chunk down that big goal into kind of uh, digestible pieces. And then before you know it, in a few months to a year, you might achieve that goal just because you set it to a smaller weekly goal and had an accountability partner to bounce ideas off of and uh, to help you when, things, when times get tough. Students, uh, they often have uh, a lot of trouble with deciding what they're going to start saving for because I, I know a good amount of them obviously have a lot of incoming student loan debt, and uh, it seems kind of daunting to... Uh, to want to save up for anything other than paying off that enormous debt. Um, would you suggest for, for saving up for things like, you know, these, these leisure activities, um, you know, fun things as opposed before you pay off this enormous student loan, if you have that? You know, that's interesting. So I think that uh, you want to balance it. I'm not, I'm not going to say that you should put all your extra savings into the savings account to pay for your student loan debt and not have any fun in college. I think that would be a mistake. In college is a time when, you know, if you, if you have the extra income, I mean, I would spend it on things that can last a lifetime. So if it's a trip with some friends that you're going to remember forever and it's going to build connections and deep relationships with people who you think can really help you down the road, then it's probably a good investment. But if you're going to just, like, blow money on something that you really don't care about that you're going to forget about in a couple months then, yeah, don't, don't waste that money on that thing that you really are going to forget about. Instead, put it towards that college debt. Or I think having, you're right, the college loan uh, debt that they're going to, that they're going to have is uh, very overwhelming. So I think the first step, rather than worry about that, is to focus on building up a savings account for an emergency fund. An emergency fund is just an amount of money that will cover three to nine months of expenses. So don't even worry about the college debt until you get that emergency fund in place because that's going to relieve a lot of stress and will actually help you pay off the college loan debt because if an emergency comes up, you can continue making those college loan payments without having to dip into other sources of, of savings or getting into more debt to pay the student loan debt. So I would say balancing uh, the fund with the emergency fund would be uh, a good first step rather than trying to tackle the overwhelming student loan debt right away. All right. Thanks so much for joining me today, Joey. Hey, thank you. Thanks for joining me tonight. I'd like to thank Ed Glazer, our general manager, and Gabriela Saldivia, our station manager. I've been your host, Quinn Hoffman, and this has been Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. 
Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. 89FM.